Hi, my name is Shruti. I'm Abhishek. And I'm Navneet. And we are Insycom. We bring you a new podcast series where we will profile enthusiastic students, scientists, and science communicators. Each of them will talk about who they are, what they do now, how they got here, and a cool scientific concept. We call this a soupçon of Psycom. Should we start? All right. Okay. Let's start. So we have somebody who is a neuroscientist and a budding electrophysiologist, and he is currently transitioning between a PhD and a postdoc. So, question number one: Who are you, and what do you do? Hi, Shruti. Thank you. I'm Srinivasan, mm-hmm. and uh, by profession, I would like to call myself a cellular biologist. It's a tough question because I've been working on two big fields, mm-hmm. uh, field of neuroscience and field of marine biology. So when I'm with a group of marine biologists, I call myself marine biologist. When I'm with a group of neuroscientists, I call myself neuroscientist. So that you blend in perfectly well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I would like to call myself going forward is a cell biologist. The past few years, what I've been doing is uh, I've been working on building this platform that we can use to easily look at different types of cells. Mm -hmm. So just to survey different types of cells. Mm -hmm. There are billions of cells in human body, Mm -hmm. but there are many, many kinds. Mm -hmm. The trouble is there's not a very easy way to look at these cell types. Mm -hmm. So I was working on developing this platform. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, it's very important to identify or define the characteristics for example there are billions of people on this planet Mm -hmm. and everyone is unique right so we have different ways of defining people based on their color color of their skin color of their hair their gender Uh, for cells we don't have those features very crisp so i've been working on finding what are these best features that we can use Mm -hmm. and what are the combinations of these features that we can use to Mm -hmm. describe these cell types that's a lofty goal but like a fantastic goal (laughs) it's it's like you want to build an encyclopedia of cell characteristics is that right exactly i think that's a good way to put that that's right (laughs) (laughs) cool okay question number two How did you get where you are right now? Long journey. If -hmm. you want to ask me, how did I become a scientist? Well, uh, I can tell you that. You can do, uh, you can tell me your spiritual journey to becoming a scientist. You can also (laughs) tell me your academic journey to becoming a scientist. I think both are equally valid journeys. I think a lot of people before have asked me this question, how Mm -hmm. did you choose to become a scientist? Mm -hmm. And the answer is I did not choose. It Mm -hmm. was uh, when I was in third grade, Mm -hmm. my, you know, teachers ask you, what do you want to become when you grow up? Yeah, you know, like they they ask kids. Yes. At that time, I think I I wanted to become a teacher because teachers had all the answers to my questions and I wanted to be this person who had all the answers in the world. So I go home and I tell this to my mom that, you know what, I want to become a teacher. Uh-huh. And she asked me, why do you want to become a teacher? Said the same thing that, you know, I want to find the, all the answers. And then she said, but there are some questions that even teachers don't know. But you know what, scientists know oh. a lot more answers. So maybe you should become a scientist. So oh. when she told me, I said, oh, okay, maybe I should become a scientist. So that's how I decided that I want to be a scientist. That's fantastic. She actually steered you <laughs> in the right direction. <laughs> so it was my mom who said, like, you know, become a scientist and I became one. That's it. Once she found that I have this passion or curiosity for different things, knowing mm-hmm. different things, mm-hmm. most of the parents do. She took me to places. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think over the years, it was, I was lucky that I had many good teachers mm-hmm. who steered 
me into the right direction when they spotted my interest at that point mm-hmm. on that so, note we can shift to the academic side of sure. uh, what you've been doing so uh, when i was in 12th uh, i had this dilemma whether i should choose science or engineering mm-hmm. and i i really wanted to do science pure sciences it's weird that my- we still have this this sort of split i mean science and engineering should kind of go together exactly wouldn't, wouldn't you think so i mean i would think so and yeah, it's so weird that we're making high right? school and and we're, it's weird that we're making high school kids choose between science and engineering as if they're like two different things but like That's in reality true. i feel like there is no like there's no difference between the two you yeah, have to study science they're interdependent exactly i think exactly. they're very interdependent but i think unfortunately uh, we still have the mentality of choosing one for job security you have precisely. to be precisely precisely uh, technology or engineering and have a secure job right if you're in sciences you will be exploring yeah but then you, it's fast. again it, the the job security is not so much in science which like automatically devalues it for like so exactly. many people right in the yeah get so go. when i mentioned that uh, my biology teacher at that point she knew that mm-hmm. i want i'm interested in pure biology but my pair, my dad wanted me to be in engineering IT. oh so, it oh my god not even engineering <laughs> like very specifically <laughs> it okay <laughs> So uh, the best option at that time was to take in the industrial biotechnology mm-hmm. which had a mix of both technology and biology mm-hmm. and he agreed to that nice but it was difficult to find a good university mm-hmm. that offered biotechnology so i enrolled in a five year integrated masters program mm-hmm. at shastra university mm-hmm. and a great school for bio- biotechnology so mm-hmm. that's where i spent five years mm-hmm. did my bachelor's and masters and um, it's there at shastra that they had many opportunities and options to explore sciences so my mentor at that time vijay like dr vijay lakshmi she spotted that i was interested in marine biology nice and she said look at toto olivera lab and oh, wow. start following his work and um, i was following his work when i was an undergrad mm mm-hmm. and uh, shastra offered the scholarship to top 10 students at the university to finish their thesis work mm mm-hmm. so i was one of the top 10 students who got that scholarship from shastra mm-hmm. to do a, my master's thesis mm-hmm. so in my familiar i wrote to professor olivera that hey uh, you know i have a scholarship and i would like to work in your lab mm-hmm. and then yeah he i was lucky he accepted me he said yeah sure come over here and oh, wow. do your thesis so nice. i spent 6 months working in his lab on my master's thesis mm-hmm. this is where i was exploring the marine biology part of my life where i was interested in cone snail biology venomous studying co- venomous cone snails mm-hmm. i liked working here and then i expressed my interest to join his lab as a phd student mm-hmm. so applied for phd and this was the only place i had applied for my phd so. oh wow you were not only <laughs> confident but you were also very lucky <laughs> yes, yes, it was both so i got into here and did my phd with him excellent uh, but there were a lot of rejections before that uh, when i was applying for my thesis project i had applied to many labs mm-hmm. uh, almost 30 labs wow to, within the university of utah no no i uh, this was in india oh i see i i i actually thought uh, like my professional tra- trajectory would be equip myself enough to impress professor olivera that you know i, I can see. work in a different lab and then do some cone snail research in a different lab mm-hmm. and then i write to professor olivera i can say oh i have this experience right would you pick me because i'm interested in it right got rejected by all the 30 labs Oof. for many reasons they were like oh we don't have lab space we don't have money right and i was so frustrated that i finally wrote to professor olivera himself <laughs> which you should like, have done in the first place <laughs> <laughs> in the first place 
and i was like what is the worst that can happen he'll reject me too right. but he was the one who accepted it so it goes on to proving that you don't really need prior experience i was very worried when i was applying to his lab that i need to have some expertise and mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. but it's not important now in retrospect i can tell students or people that right just the passion and honesty and sincerity yeah i mean sometimes that's what professors are looking for they're looking yeah. for like the drive and the passion and the curiosity to to find a question and sort of see through to the end so it makes perfect sense so yeah that's that's how i decided to do my phd with him and it's worked out so Excellent. 6 years of PhD with him. Yes. Excellent. Well, he's about you're about to finish, so congratulations and you've already you. defended your thesis, so you are Dr. <laughs> Raghuraman. And finally, we come to question number 3, which is imagine you have the power to go back in time to when you were in high school or undergrad. Can you pick and explain one concept to your younger self that you think is the coolest, most important or most awesome in your field? It's because i was very dumb so <laughs> that's okay explain it to yourself to make it interesting <laughs> so, uh, one of the coolest things was um, let's see um, one concept i would say is um, there are many many biological interactions going around that i wasn't aware of so going back in time i would say look for so many creatures that are around you and observe their interactions mm mm-hmm. and uh, also find out the interactions between animals under the sea a lot of animals survive in a symbiotic relationship by where they both benefit each other but also there is a prey predator relationship mm-hmm. and uh, one of the coolest prey predator relationship is between cone snails and fish mm-hmm. cone snails are marine cone snails are venomous mm-hmm. they, they are packed with a very powerful cocktail of venom mm-hmm. that they use to hunt fish worms and other sea creatures so you're telling me snails hunt for fish fish yes it's, and and when you say hunt like all i can think of is like a running cheetah or a lion <laughs> and when you say snail all i can think of is a thing that does not move very fast <laughs> exactly that is what is mind blowing about these snails right, right. so you wouldn't expect snails to be hunting around they are these shy creatures that will shrink back into their shells right. but here you have these amazingly complex snails mm-hmm. that have evolved about that have evolved this complex cocktail of venom mm-hmm. to capture food so that is enough for me to know when i was in 12 i think that will instigate my curiosity <laughs> to know more about these things Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. Can you give us like an example of one snail or one mechanism that you thought was like really cool as you were going through your PhD work? It's actually very uh, amazing how the biology of cone snails is or how the anatomy is. We still don't know a lot about the biology of snails and their interactions with their uh, either with their own predators or their own prey. Mm-hmm. Um one of the coolest features was uh, the different hunting strategies different types of snails use mm-hmm. so imagine i give you an egg mm-hmm. you have different ways of cooking your egg you can scramble it depending on which part of the world you are in let's say you know if i give it to a french it will yeah. be different cooking indian different similarly snails have different ways of cook, uh, eating or they have different feeding strategies mm-hmm. some of them open their mouth and spray around toxin into the water mm-hmm. and it makes a bunch of fish go wonky mm-hmm. and they are very drowsy mm-hmm. and the snails can go and capture them mm-hmm. 
others nails are very shrewd what they do is instead of opening their mouths and spraying around toxin they wait around in crevices and when they fence fish they take out this harpoon like teeth so you can look wow. at the molecular picture of these or you know shape of these two that they actually are like harpoon they're shaped like harpoon wow and wait they they're like kind of teeth or they're like an organ that specialized that come instead of teeth so they are teeth they oh they are, are teeth uh, okay yeah okay. so they are they're basically it's in a sack basically uh-huh. so just they don't have it in, in their mouths stuck like our teeth right. but they keep it as a reserve so right as an accessory have, sack yeah they have hundreds of these harpoon like teeth so uh-huh. they are like toothpicks basically uh-huh. but they're shaped like harpoons wow. so you know so that once they inject mm-hmm. to the fish they can tether it and reel it back so they are literally going fishing so my god the so the, the other end of the tip of the harpoon is connected back to the sack yeah so it's basically saying. connected to the tube oh. uh, that they get and it's a it's a venom duct and mm-hmm. they i think their mouth muscles are strong enough that they can hold it right and can reel it back to their mouth wow. so um like i so can totally this, imagine like a tiny snail having a, a small uh, having having like a small uh, a label on it saying gone fishing and like you know th- <laughs> throwing out throwing out these venom harpoons so these tooth is also that they are hollow mm-hmm. so they are like hypodermic needle mm-hmm. so that they can use the same needle to inject venom and okay. also use it to tether fish so there are so, snails that use it without the venom and then there are snails that use it with the venom or is it usually almost always with the venom i it's usually if they have a tooth it's yeah. always with the venom mm-hmm. so you they will be venomous they'll inject venom and they'll take it mm mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. So there are many ways these snails feed on. We only know about these feeders one that spray around toxin and capture schools of fish. We mm-hmm. call it net hunter. Mhm. And then the other that use these teeth mm-hmm. to go fish, we call them taser and tether strategy where they taste the fish and tether them. Oh so my god, that's Those are the That's t- giving me like amazing views <laughs> of fish like being tasered to death. <laughs> Yeah. So those are cool science concepts I would be telling my younger self. And uh, also um those are only two uh, that have been ex- extensively studied. Mm-hmm. There are so many other strategies and feeding behaviors we have we are yet to uncover. Mhm. And more recently we uncovered a very new way of feeding. These snails are called vampire snails. Snails. They have a duct and you can see that you know it's stuck to the fish the okay. fish is pretty large compared to the size of the snail uh-huh. but somehow they have figured out a way to anesthetize these fish so the fish is sleeping uh-huh. and then you can see the snail slowly sucking blood out of the fish whoa and then they feed themselves whoa. we don't know how they are able to do that we don't know how they are able to attack the fish or how they are anesthetizing the fish but throughout the whole feeding time yeah the fish is asleep uh-huh. and as soon as the snail is done feeding uh-huh. then the fish slowly comes out of anesthesia and then it's just you know thrashing and swimming away so the and fish the snail, doesn't actually die it doesn't die it doesn't die and the cone snail feeds exclusively on fish blood yes that is fantastic so, i did not even so, know such a thing existed <laughs> this is a new work i think it's uh, some of the scientists in italy some of the collaborators of the lab have found that out 
but we are very excited to now look at the strategy as well and see what are these snails, how are they anesthetizing the fish and how are they preventing the blood clot because you know when you're feeding on exclusively on blood how what are the anticoagulants that are there right this is like similar to a mosquito or a or a leech you know that kind of hangs on and then the blood doesn't clot while it's, exactly yeah. and i think that it will be very interesting to look at these parallels you know like you point out are these uh, mechanisms similar in all these animals? Mm-hmm. Are they using different things to do, achieve the same common goal? Right. Like, is it independently evolved to like a common goal? Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you again for saying yes. If it ever happens that we do invent time travel, I hope your younger self is very happy because you told him about <laughs> feeding strategies of cone snails. <laughs> I think I'll learn about them much earlier, but I guess I'll still take the same trajectory of what I've taken. Exactly. So yeah. It'll be fun. <laughs> Super. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shruti. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of Susan of Psycom. And stay tuned for our next episode where we talk about fishes with superpowers. Thank mm-hmm. you.